Good morning, church. It's all right. I know. It's like an hour less. I understand. But, uh, you know, it's not a cliche. I'm really glad to see you. I'm really glad that you're here, each and every one of y'all. Um, it is such an encouragement when God's people gather to sing songs like that together. To, to hear from the front row up here. I know not everybody can sit on the front row. I know not everybody wants to sit on the front row. But when you're up here, you hear God's people, your brothers and sisters singing behind you these great confessions of faith and these qualities about the Lord and our desire to see him magnified in our lives and the world, to see the gospel go forth from the church. And it is such an encouragement to hear God's people extol God's goodness and greatness and glory on Sunday morning. So I am glad that you're here. And when you're not, your voice is missed. Your voice is missed. So I'm glad that you're all here worshiping the Lord with us. If you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, you do open to Genesis chapter 22. We're continuing our study in the book of Genesis this morning. Last week we covered the first 14 verses of Genesis chapter 22 and we saw Abraham obediently offer up his son Isaac on the altar as the Lord had commanded him to. Incredible passage and we'll look at some of that again this morning. But in these last 10 verses that we'll cover this morning, verses 15 through 24, we see Abraham being rewarded for that obedience. And so this morning we're going to review some from the first 14 verses because there's so much there we really didn't have time to unpack all of that. But we'll also dive into these last 10 verses as well. So I want to read this morning uh, the entire chapter. The last 10 verses don't stand on their own. They require the context of the first 14. And so follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, so they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand 
and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has born, also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hezo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abram's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Geham, Tahash, and Ma'akah. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we... We thank you for this book that we hold in our hands. We praise you, Father, that you have preserved this throughout the ages so that we know this is your very breath. And we ask, Father, that you would attend to the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, not just so that we would be smarter about what this means, but so that we'd be changed by it. We ask that you would use your word, apply it to our lives, so that we might be transformed, even this morning, more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we ask for your glory. We pray this in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So in verses 1 through 14, we saw last week some incredible parallels to the gospel that just shone like a spotlight on Calvary. So whether you call them typology or foreshadowing or whatever, several actions that that are pointing to Jesus, that are pointing to the cross. And this morning, I just want to remind us of three of those, three of those parallels. First of all, in Abraham's offering of his son, in his love for his son, we see a parallel of God the Father's love for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We mentioned this last week, the, the writer of Genesis, which is Moses, does not reveal to us what's going on in Abraham's mind. We can guess, though, what is going on in Abraham's mind. We, we felt that last week, the turmoil that's in Abraham's heart and mind. After he's told by God to go and offer up his son, his only son, Isaac, 
as an offering to him, we see Abraham saddling his donkey, beginning to cut the wood, and setting out on that three-day journey. And we imagine the turmoil that was in Abraham's heart and mind. And that turmoil was there because he deeply, desperately loved his son. And the intensity of Abraham's love points to the intensity of God's love for his son, Jesus. And that's critical for us to get. If we miss somehow the intensity of God's love for his son, then we will not get the cross. We, we will not comprehend the significance of what is happening there if we somehow think less of God's love for his son. God deeply, desperately loved his son with an intensity that is difficult for us to imagine. And we see it foreshadowed in Abraham's intense love for his son, Isaac. Just as with Abraham's love for Isaac, just as with any father's love for his son or his daughter, his children, so the father deeply and desperately loved his son. And that's why the cross was so painful for the father. You see, the cost of Calvary was not just a cost for Jesus. It was a cost for the father as well. And what was that cost? Well, for one... It was the cost of his son enduring the physical pain of sacrifice. But even much more than that, it is the cost that Jesus bore our sin on his shoulders as he hung on the cross. And that was something that the father could not behold, and so he turned his face away. And Jesus looked up at his father as he hung on the cross with, with our sin covering him. He looked at the father and he said, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this intense love of the father for the son is paralleled, foreshadowed, imperfectly, but it's foreshadowed by Abraham's deep love for his son Isaac. And yet, the Lord sends Jesus and sacrifices him for us, for you and I, which only highlights his love, not just for his son, but for you and I, for the church. Stuart Townend, in his modern-day hymn, one of the great hymn writers of our day, I believe, in his modern-day hymn, how deep the Father's love for us. He says this, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. And then listen to the second verse. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. So in Abraham's love for Isaac, we see this incredible parallel of God's love for his son. And in turn, that highlights his amazing, gracious, unexplainable love for sinners like us. The second parallel that we see in verses 1 through 14 
is in Isaac's liberation from the altar, we see a parallel of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, we might not see this if we only look at this passage, because in this passage, there's no mention of resurrection. There's no mention of Isaac coming back from the dead. But when it attempts to, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And the writer of Hebrews gives us an insightful interpretation of this scene on Mount Moriah. We looked at this last week from Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, which is Abraham, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then he tells us what was the writer of Hebrews, divinely inspired through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews gives us an insight as to what was going on in Abraham's mind as he prepared to offer up his son. Verse 19 of Hebrews 11, he considered, Abraham considered that God was even, was able even to raise him from the dead, raise Isaac from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It's incredible. According to Hebrews 11, what what Abraham was thinking, what he was figuring when he was about to offer up his son on on that altar as a burnt offering, what was going through his mind is, I believe that God can raise him from the dead. He was thinking of resurrection. But more than that, the writer of Hebrews also tells us that Isaac was, figuratively speaking, he was raised from the dead. Think about it. He was on the altar. He was bound. He was laid on the wood. He was the sacrificial lamb. His father had raised the knife and was preparing to obediently, according to God's command of him, offer up his son. He was, Isaac was, as good as dead. And at the last moment, the Lord, through the angel, stayed Abraham's hand and said, Do not touch the boy. Do not harm him, for now I know that you will not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. He stopped him, and Isaac was saved. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that it was as if Isaac was raised from the dead. It was as if he came back to life because he was as good as dead, which of course all points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Except in Jesus' case, he actually died. He actually was killed. And he actually was put in the grave. And he actually did raise from the dead three days later proving that God had accepted the sacrifice on the cross as payment in full for our sins. So, in Isaac's liberation, being being freed from the altar, we see a parallel to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then the third parallel, that ram in the thicket, that ram that's caught in the thicket. In that, we see a parallel to Jesus our substitute for us. 
The Lord calls out to Abraham, as we said, through the angel, stop Abraham, don't do it, don't harm the child, and Isaac is saved. But then the Lord miraculously causes a ram to appear out of nowhere in the thicket behind him. And Abraham grabs the ram and offers that ram up as a sacrifice. And verse 13 tells us, instead of his son. The ram was a substitute offered in the place of Isaac. And it points to the fact that Jesus was offered up as a substitute for us on the cross in our place. This is the doctrine of substitution. One offering offered up in the place of another. For, for Bible scholars, it's the, it's the doctrine of penal substitution. The one who deserves punishment One deserves punishment, but the other receives the punishment for them on their behalf, in their place, and in so doing, saves the one who deserves the punishment in the first place. This is what the prophet Isaiah was referring to when he wrote in that famous suffering servant chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53, he writes this, surely he's speaking of the, the prophecy of the suffering servant, Jesus, the, the Messiah who would come. He says, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Look at the language of substitution here. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. So we should behold in Jesus We should see, when we see him on the cross, as our substitute, that is foreshadowed in the ram that's caught in the thicket, that's offered up as a substitute for Isaac. So now we turn our attention now to the final 10 verses of chapter 22, where we see Abraham rewarded for this obedience. We saw his obedience in the first 14 verses. First 14 verses are all about the obedience of Abraham. And the last 10 verses are all about Abraham's reward because of that obedience. Abraham's obedience is what Moses is putting on display in chapter 22. It's what he wants us to notice. It's it's what he wants his original audience, the the Israelites wandering the Sinai Peninsula. It's, It's what he wants them to take note of. Abraham's obedience, see that, people, Moses says. He puts it on display. Abraham's willingness to offer up his only son, to to do that which is the most difficult thing imaginable. No matter how hard it was, no matter how much it didn't make sense to him, this obedience of Abraham is held up by Moses as exemplary. And we are to observe Abraham's obedience here And then seek to replicate that in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ today. 
that we do what God tells us to do, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much it doesn't make sense to us to obey him, if he tells us to do it, we do it. So I want us to look briefly at Abraham's obedience. I want us to map it out in this chapter so that we can see the kind of obedience that we're called to emulate. Because again, what we'll see in these last 10 verses is that this is the kind of obedience that God rewards. So we have to make sense of that. So what is this obedience? James Montgomery Boyce, famous pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, the same church where Donald Gray Barnhouse pastored, where more recently Philip Ryken, who's the president of Wheaton College, pastored, um, 20th century pastor. He, in his commentary... He notes that Abraham's obedience had six qualities. I want to just briefly run through these because this is the kind of obedience that God rewards, apparently. First of all, it was prompt. It was a prompt obedience. And we've seen this in the Genesis account of Abraham. This is a characteristic of Abraham's obedience. It's prompt. Back in chapter 17, when he was told to circumcise himself and his son Ishmael and all the males of his household, We're told that on that very day, he did it. On that very day. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, when God told him to send away his son Ishmael and and, uh, the Egyptian uh, slave Hagar through whom he had that son, when he took matters into his own hands and wasn't trusting God and he had a son through Hagar, God said, I want you to send him away because I'm going to bring your offspring through Isaac. So he tells Abraham, send away your son and Hagar. And we're told in that chapter, early the next morning, he took bread and a skin of wine, gave it to them, skin of water, gave it to them and sent them away. Very next morning, early the next morning, he did that. And even at the beginning of this chapter, when God tells Abraham to do the thing that is the most difficult thing in his life, the most difficult thing imaginable, to offer up your son as a burnt offering for me. What are we told in verse 3? So Abraham rose early the next morning, and he immediately set out obeying the Lord. He saddled his donkey, began cutting the wood for the sacrifice, and he set out on his three-day journey to Moriah. Abraham's obedience was immediate. There was no delay. Do you obey the Lord that way? Do I obey the Lord that way? Immediate, no questions asked. Or do we linger behind him, hoping that he will change his mind? Abraham's obedience was immediate, it was prompt. Secondly, it was sustained. We're told that it was a three-day journey from Beersheba, where they lived, to Mount Moriah, where he was to offer up Isaac. Three long days. And his obedience was sustained the whole time with each step. Eugene Peterson, in his classic work, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a great title. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which, by the way, is subtitled Discipleship in an Instant Society, which ironically was written in 1980. Before there were smartphones, before there were apps, before there was Google, before there was even internet. Discipleship in an instant society. How much more instant is ours today? His point in that book is that discipleship is not a flash in the pan. It is a lifelong journey that requires persistent obedience 
over the long haul. And isn't that what we see in Abraham here? Persistent obedience, literally over the long haul, with every step of that three-day journey. He just keeps going. Each step, probably more agonizing than the next. He doesn't stop. He doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He just keeps walking. It's one thing to have an obedience that is a flash in the pan. It's another to have an obedience that crosses the finish line, that lasts until the end of the race. That's what God has called us to, church, to have that kind of sustained obedience no matter what. Thirdly, Abraham's obedience was a willing obedience. Abraham was willing to obey. Now, that's kind of obvious, right? It it seems almost superfluous to say that he was willing to obey because he obeyed, right? Of course he was willing. But we all know that someone can be obedient on the outside while being utterly defiant and resistant and resentful on the inside. If you don't think that's possible, just ask any parent of a toddler or a two-year-old or three-year-old or teenager. We can be obedient on the outside while being defiant and resentful on the inside. And I know if I had been asked by the Lord to offer up one of my sons, if I had obeyed, I probably wouldn't have obeyed. But if I had obeyed, I would have been incredibly defiant on the inside, resentful and resisting and probably hating God every step of the way. But that's not what we see in Abraham. What does Abraham say when he gets to the foot of the mountain where he's to offer up this sacrifice? What does he say to the two two young men that go with him? In verse 5, he says, stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. We will worship. Incredible language that Abraham uses of this instance. We're going to go over there. We're going to worship. He doesn't consider the command of, of God in this case to be some kind of arbitrary, cruel demand of a a capricious and sadistic deity. It was worship. Reminds us of Jesus in the garden. He prays to the Father. He says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. Abraham was willing. Are we willing to do whatever God tells us to do? And then fourth, his obedience was a settled obedience. We, we pondered last week about what may have been going on in Abraham's mind as he set out to obey this incredibly hard command that was given to him. And we surmised that there was probably a great deal of turmoil in Abraham's heart and mind. But if there was, there probably was, but if there was, he never let it show. It, it never came out. It didn't come out in his, there was no unsettledness in in his remarks to the two young men in verse 5 as we just read. There was no turmoil, there was no unsettledness in his answer to his son Isaac when Isaac asked, well, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? He answers in verse 8, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Abraham was settled about this. God said, do this. So he was going to do it. Boyce notes that this kind of obedience requires us to keep our eyes fixed on God who is unchanging and not on the world around us 
that is constantly changing. So is your obedience to God settled in this manner? I mean, have you settled this, that, that like he is sovereign and he's your authority and if he says do it, then you'll do it? Have you settled that or are you still wrestling with who's calling the shots in your life? We say that we are followers of Jesus, which means that we'll do what he says. So Abraham's was a settled obedience. Fifthly, it was a contagious obedience. It was contagious. And we know that it was contagious because his son Isaac seemed to have been infected by it. We said last week that that Isaac here, though it uses the word boy, he was probably a, a teenager of some age able at least to somehow physically resist and, and fight back when, when his father bound him and laid him on the altar. But he didn't. He didn't resist. He didn't fight back. Why not? Well, because he had seen what full obedience to the Lord looked like. And he had seen it in his father. And so even though this was the hardest thing he could possibly imagine, he obediently stayed on the altar and didn't fight back and didn't resist and continue to stay on the altar that he and his father had erected. And then finally, this obedience of Abraham's is a rewarded obedience. And this was this what brings us to the text that we're looking at this morning, verses 15 through 24. And we see two rewards in this passage. One is the reward of covenant promises that he's reminded of in verses 15 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 24, he's also rewarded by the provision of a wife for his son Isaac. So let's look at the first reward in verses 15 through 19. The reward of obedience here is the assurance of covenant promises. He assures him again, reminds him yet again. This this isn't the first time. If you're new to us here at New Brands, this is the first Sunday. This isn't the first time God has made these promises. He's made them over and over and over and over again since chapter 12. And now he's reminding them again of this. And, And it appears to be a reward for Abraham's obedience in this story. Because of your obedience, I will bless you and multiply your offspring, he says. Now, God had already given him a son, so let's look at at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. We remember the first time, verses 11 through 12, we mentioned it earlier. When, when, When the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham, do not touch that boy, for now I know that you won't withhold your only son from me. And now he speaks to him a second time, and he says, verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And church, that is significant. The Lord swears by himself. And we're helped here by Hebrews 6. You can go look that up on your own time. The writer of Hebrews helps us with this as well. He tells us that that when, when man makes a promise... In order to, to confirm that promise and, and, make, and solidify it for the one that you're promising to, he swears by something greater than himself. But here, God can swear by nothing greater than himself because there isn't anything greater than himself. And so first we have God ratifying the, the, the covenant with this uh, covenant ratifying ceremony in chapter 15 and then we have the the uh, the circumcision as a sign of the covenant and now God swears by himself that he will do these things incredible language here that is used he says I swear by myself 
declares the Lord, because you have done this. There's the language of causality. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. Now, he had one son, and so he did receive a blessing here. But this this promise of multiplying his offspring had not yet happened. It's still in the future. And and we're going to read in in verses 20 through 24 of his brother brother Nahor. Now, he had had his offspring multiplied. I mean, children are coming out all over the place in verses 20 through 24. But Abraham and Sarah just have that one. They just have Isaac, that one son. But the Lord says, I will surely multiply your offspring. How much will he multiply them? He goes on. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And we recall the scene from the beginning of chapter 15. When when God leads Abraham out of his tent at night and he says, Abraham, look at the stars. See all those stars? If you can count them, you can count your offspring. It's going to be too numerous to count. And so we've seen this illustration of multiplication of offspring before. But the next illustration we haven't seen yet. It's brand new. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So back in chapter 13, it was the dust of the earth. Man, if you can count the dust of the earth, so shall your offspring be. In chapter 15, it's the stars of heaven. If you can count the stars of heaven, so shall your offspring be. And now he says, your offspring will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. I don't know how to count the dust on the earth, and I don't know how many stars there are in the night sky. Sometimes if you go away to the, to the country, away from the city where, there, where, where the city lights uh, cause us to not see all the stars, you can see incredible number of stars just all over the place on a, on a bright night. But man, the, the sand on the seashore, like the sand on every seashore of the earth, God seems to be ratcheting up this promise of multiplication here. God was telling him in no, no uncertain terms that through your son Isaac will come a massive lineage of descendants. Verse 17 continues, And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, which is a prophecy of the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of the promised land. Your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. But I think also this is, a, this is a prophecy of Jesus defeating on the cross our enemy, Satan, and our enemy, sin. That, that, that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, culminating in Jesus, shall possess the gate of his enemies. Verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God's blessing to Abraham is the means by which God will bless all the nations. And of course, the beginning of that, of the fulfillment of the blessing of the nations, the beginning of that fulfillment is when Jesus arrives. The the one who is the the seed that, that came from the woman through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph. Jesus is born. We trace Jesus' lineage from Abraham through Matthew's gospel but this Jesus will be put to death on the cross as a substitute for us for the sins of the people of all nations, Pantatai, ethne. That was the beginning of the fulfillment of the blessing of the nations through Abraham. But that blessing of the nations through Abraham continues today. 
as we are compelled by God, as God moves in us to take the gospel to the nations so that the nations might be reconciled back to God. And by these means, Abraham's offspring, just as is prophesied here, Abraham's offspring, us, the church, continue to be a blessing to the nations as we bring them the gospel. And so God is assuring Abraham here of all of these covenant promises. But then he says at the end of verse 18 that I do this for you. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. He does that twice in this passage. And we need to wrestle with this. We're told that Abraham is rewarded in these promises, these covenant promises, as a result of obedience. In verse 16, he says, because you have done this. In verse 18, he says, it's because you have obeyed my voice. And this is troubling for many. And perhaps it's troubling for you this morning. Because this appears to make God's covenant promises to Abraham conditional. That they are conditional on Abraham's obedience. That if he does obey, then we'll see the fulfillment of these promises. And if he doesn't obey, then we won't see the fulfillment of these promises. It's as if the promises are in some way unsure and not assured and not a sure thing. Because they're dependent, they're conditioned on Abraham's obedience. And man, that sounds an awful lot like works, doesn't it? As if Abraham, through his own works, through his own effort, through his own obedience, somehow earns the fulfillment of these covenant promises, or perhaps loses them if he doesn't obey. But how can these covenant promises be conditional if the promises were given by God long ago, long before Abraham's obedience, even before God asked him to do this thing? This is a covenant of grace, church, God's covenant with Abraham is a covenant of grace. It was given by God to undeserving Abraham long before he required him to offer up Isaac, long before Abraham's obedience, without any condition at that point. But, verse 16 still says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring. And yet we know that it's a covenant of grace. Because we remember in that, in that covenant ratifying ceremony of chapter 15, when God told Abraham to take the animals and split them in half, and he alone, God alone, passed through the pieces Declaring to Abraham, Abraham, may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I do not keep these promises to you. It was unilateral. Abraham didn't go through the pieces. And so it was a covenant of grace. And yet, at the end of this passage, verse 18, he says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is conditional language. This is cause, language of causation. So how do we make sense of this? How, how, how can this be a unilateral covenant of grace while also being conditioned somehow on Abraham's obedience? 
How can a unilateral covenant of grace also be conditional? John Piper has helped me out immensely in this. And so I want to just read a quote from him so that he can help us all out with this this morning. Piper says this, There is a good deal of confusion over this matter of whether the Abrahamic covenant is conditional or not. But the confusion is not necessary And it arises from a false assumption, namely, that if a covenant is conditional, it cannot be certain of fulfillment. Or to put it another way, if a person must meet certain conditions in order to benefit from God's promises, then the fulfillment of those promises cannot be irrevocable and sure. But that is not true. That is a false assumption based squarely on the conviction that man is autonomous and self-determining. But if, as Ezekiel 36, 27 says, God puts his spirit in man and causes him to walk in his statutes and thus fulfill his covenant conditions, then a promise can be both conditional and certain of fulfillment. If God commits himself to work so that Abraham fulfills the conditions of the covenant promises, then there is no inconsistency whatsoever in saying that the promises are sure, steadfast, irrevocable, and conditional. Piper goes on to say this, this means that the covenant of Abraham is just like the new covenant under which we live. For it too is conditional, not on works, but on the obedience of faith. Jesus says in John three thirty six, he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests on him. Hebrews 5.9 says, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The covenant of Abraham and the new covenant under which we live today are one covenant of grace, because in both, gracious promises are made to sinners who receive them through faith. A faith which banks so completely on the wisdom and power, and love of God that it inevitably obeys his commands. So, what does that mean? How, how, can, how can a unilateral covenant of grace also be conditional on my obedience? Because it is God who is in me. It's God who is at work in me. This God who made a covenant with me, he will cause me to love him more and to want to obey him, such that I will obey him. So God rewards Abraham's obedience with these covenant promises, but note that that this was a reward that was never in question. Because although it was conditioned on Abraham's obedience, Abraham's obedience was never in question because of his faith in God. So the same is true for us. Piper quotes from John 3.36 and from Hebrews 5 verse 9. I'll quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the familiar passage that we go to to see what is the gospel. Here Paul says the same thing. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That last phrase sounds like the same thing, right? It sounds like the language of condition. It seems to be putting a condition on being saved. And that condition here is 
If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, the gospel. If you hold fast to the gospel. So is that truly a condition on our assurance of salvation that we'll only be saved if we, if we hold fast, if we continue to hold fast to the gospel to the end? Yes. Yes, it is. But that doesn't make it salvation by works, see? Because if we are truly saved, then, then our holding fast to the gospel is never in question because of Christ in us. Again, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Not us, not through our efforts, not through our trying to have more faith. He who gave us the faith will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So that's the first reward that God gives to Abraham. These covenant promises, these reminders of all that he's going to do. And he says, this is a reward for your obedience, which is an obedience that was never in question because of God at work in him. And then a second reward is found in verses 20 through 24 for Isaac, a provision of a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. Here we read about the children of Nahor, Abraham's brother. And man, it is, their tent is just like bursting at the seams with kids, right? It's like one kid after another, ooze, booze, all these guys, right? And then we get to verse 22, and, and, we, and we read here, that he's got this son named Bethuel. So Nahor's got all these kids. I mean, they're just coming out of the woodwork. And Abraham and Sarah just have the one, just have young Isaac, and he's a teenager. And God has just reminded Abraham, I'm going to turn Isaac into a great nation. You won't even be able to count all his offspring. And Abraham and Sarah are over 100. And their kid's like a teenager. How and when and where are they going to find a wife for him? How's that going to happen? And so the Lord speaks to Abraham again, we're, said, we're told. And he tells Abraham about his brother Nahor and, and, and all these kids. And, and one of them is named Bethuel. And, and we find in verse 23 that Bethuel fathered Rebekah. And of course, this is significant because Rebekah becomes the wife of his son, Isaac. But if you have the ESV that I read, read from, the English Standard Version, the extra serious version, I would say, you'll, you'll notice there that the ESV translators put the beginning of verse 23 in parentheses. You see that? Bethuel fathered Rebekah. And the reason they do that is because they believe that what's happening here in this passage, Moses is quoting the angel that's speaking to Abraham about all of the offspring of Nahor, his brother. But the ESV translators believe this, this part wasn't spoken by the translator, or by, by the angel. This part was spoken by Moses. That, that, that Moses, when he's writing this book under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he includes this as a piece of commentary to his readers. In other words, Abraham, he didn't know at this point that Bethuel would be the one that would have a daughter, and his daughter's name would be Rebekah, and Rebekah would be the wife of his son Isaac. He didn't know that. Verse 23a is in the past tense. Bethuel fathered Rebecca, but it wasn't in the past tense for Abraham. It hadn't happened. 
And that had happened for a number of years. But at this point, it was in the past tense for Moses. And so God is giving Abraham news in these verses of all these descendants of his brother Nahor. But in doing, in, in, in quoting the angel, Moses says, and look what he's doing. Look what God is doing, guys. He's providing a wife for Isaac in this. What a kindness of God. God not only provided a substitute for Isaac, he provided a wife for Isaac. And this is a reminder to us that God is planning blessings for us even before we know it. And perhaps he's planning a blessing for you even now. So what's our application to this passage? Again, we've said that uh, what Moses is drawing a highlight, a spotlight on in this passage is the obedience of Abraham. He's certainly pointing to Christ, but he's in, in the moment, in the story, he's, he's highlighting the obedience of Abraham. And so our application is to obey. Moses wants us to see the obedience of Abraham and follow that example. So what is it that God is telling you to do? What is it that he's asking you to step out in faith and just trust him and obey him? And we know that he's told us lots of things to do and not do in this book. We need to look no further than this to find God's commands to us, God's expectation of obedience to what he is asking us to do and not do. The question is, will we obey him? Will we trust him? And by the way, that's not two questions, that's one. Will we obey him? Will we trust him is one question. Because obedience to God is our faith put in action. So let me exhort you, whatever it is, trust him. Trust his word, trust his promises, and obey him. No matter how hard it is, no matter how much you, it doesn't make sense to you, obey him. Obey him. And may your obedience be like Abraham's, prompt, sustained for the long haul, willing inside and out, a settled obedience, a contagious obedience to the people around you, and an obedience that is rewarded with our reward for obedience, which is never in question, our eternal salvation and our sanctification in Christ. But as great as Abraham's obedience was, it wasn't perfect. We've seen this throughout the Genesis account of Abraham's life that, that now is beginning to draw to a close. We've seen his unwavering faith. We've seen his, his imperfect obedience to the Father. Abraham's obedience wasn't perfect, and neither is ours. So that's why we're grateful that this sacrifice of his son Isaac points to the sacrifice of our Redeemer. Jesus who became our obedience. He, he, he came here because our obedience wasn't perfect. It wasn't flawless. Jesus came because of that. And through his flawless obedience, and through his sacrifice, his substitution in our place on the cross of Calvary, he made provision for our sins. And we must never graduate from that good news. My question to you who are in this room 
and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never trusted in Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father as a substitute, as a replacement for your disobedience. You've never trusted in his sacrifice on the cross as the thing that will pay for the price of your rebellion against God. If you've never trusted in Christ, then why not? Why haven't you trusted in him? How are you doing at making yourself acceptable to God? The scripture is clear, you cannot. It's a dead end street. And so I beg of you, be reconciled to God, not through your own efforts, not through your good works, Be reconciled to God through the perfect obedience of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross in your place. Trust in Christ alone to rescue you. And he'll make you his own. Let's pray. Father God, we want to pray for all those in this room who've not placed their faith in you. Maybe they've been in church all or most of their life. Maybe they've been trying to be good. And maybe they're even better than most. But they've never come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from what they deserve. God, we just ask right now in the quietness of this moment that you would bring to them a heavy conviction of their sin and their need for rescue that their hopelessness for eternal life, that their deserving nature of punishment for their sins is real and tangible. And then God, show them your son Jesus who was sent for that reason, who was sent because our obedience is imperfect, because our obedience is not enough, because our sin is so great that we needed a rescuer, we needed a redeemer, and Jesus has accomplished all of that in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Give that person, give that young man, give that young woman or old woman, give them faith to trust in Jesus Christ, we ask. Lead them across the line of faith, even now. Bring them into your family for your glory. Not for their glory, but for yours, Father. That's why you redeemed all of us, Lord. Those who know you by faith, that's why you redeemed us. Not so that people would look at us and say, wow, what great Christians. But so that people would look at us and say, what an amazing, gracious God. Be glorified in us as we continue to live out the gospel and take the gospel to the lost around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.